Hi, everyone. This is Diane Wilson of the Genius Podcast, where we focus on sciencing your human potential. It's December 2021, and this will be the last interview of, of the year. And I want to thank everyone who's listened and participated and the great guests that we've had. Before we launch into this, the actual interview, I want to tell you a couple of things. One, our pop-up book club was great. It was great fun and we made a video of it that we'll be sharing. So, and if you'd like to read Braindance in your book club, we have a guide. So just send me a note, diane.g.wilson at gmail.com and I'll send you a book guide. And let's see, the last thing is we have a planner. We have Braindance planner. It's so exciting. My, uh, a good friend of mine is a graphic artist and this time of the year, everyone I think feels that they need to be planning or thinking about the new year. And traditional planning doesn't work for a lot of people. So this is a journal planner where you get to process what's going on. I mean, heavens, no one really expected a global pandemic. And I think often it's not what happens, it's what we learn from it that makes us effective in our lives and creating things because we'll we'll take what we're learning from whatever's happening to build the next thing. So that's what this planner is like. So if you'd like to take a look at it, it's ready. It would make a great present. Okay, that's my commercial. Thank you for listening. But um, yeah, uh, the link to it will be on our website at diangwilson.com. Okay, without further ado, we'll move into our interview. For the last podcast of the season, I have someone I've been so anxious to talk with, so eager to talk with, someone I followed on social media that I don't really know well personally, like many of the people I've interviewed, but but someone I really wanted to know and I wanted other people to know. So this is Jem Heemstra from Emory University. She's a chemist and she has very interesting uh, aspects of her background and that will help us in terms of leadership and and um, being a scientist and also with the world is like today. So welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I've likewise been following you on Twitter and hoping to have the chance to talk. So I'm very excited to be here today. That's great. So so tell us what you what you do. You you are involved in leadership, but you're also a chemist and and a leader. Yeah, that's right. I really I'm a builder. That's something that I have discovered about myself over the years that chemistry. I never knew why I loved chemistry so much. But once I had the opportunity to start doing research in it, there was this moment where I said, wow, this is just so much fun. And I don't even know really why I find it so fun, but oh my goodness, I love doing this. And over time, I've come to realize that it's really about building. And it's actually ironic, my group at our lab social hour last night, we were actually talking about what excites us about science. And they asked me, did you ever think about being an engineer? Because I actually think like an engineer and in our group we do, but it's all engineering at the molecular level. So I became a chemist because I love 
building molecules. And then I realized that I really wanted this job being a faculty member because I wanted the opportunity to build an independent research program to say, okay, this is, nobody's telling us what we have to do. What do we want to do? And what do we want to create from the ground up as our area of research and as our program and projects that we work on? And then over time, I've come to realize that the best part of this job is the opportunity to be a leader and a mentor because it's the opportunity to be part of helping other people build their future careers and their future lives. And that is just the most fun and fulfilling type of building that I've ever gotten to do. And to think about building policies and cultures that create a space that we all want to work in and, and ultimately building hopefully a healthier academic culture that benefits all future generations of scientists. Wow. See what I mean? And, and this is why, and this is why it, it's, it's a rare combination of skills, I think, in terms of like in terms of doing assessments, you don't usually see someone who's just you know, gravitates towards science, who wants to be a leader, who wants to grow things. They're, these are not things that I generally see together, but you're so passionate about it. It's, it's very exciting. It's exciting to be around. Um, you you mentioned know, that's, that's actually really interesting. I, one of my leadership friends encouraged me and my whole lab to do a Berkman analysis. So this is one of those personality inventories. It's by far my favorite one. In fact, you can see my little Berkman card behind me as we're chatting. I know everyone listening to the podcast won't be able to, but I did that with my whole group. And it was so much fun to learn about all of the different ways that we view the world, all of the different ways that we prefer to work. The Berkman is amazing because it teaches you about your normal behavior and your stress behaviors. So if you're working with people, being able to identify that when someone is not acting as you might expect them to, that that, that might just be because they're having a really stressful day and they're in their stress behavior and then to be able to support each other rather than having that lead to conflict. But from that analysis too, it really teaches you a lot about yourself. And one of my friends who's outside of science um, and outside of academia, but is a, a facilitator for this, he looked at my analysis and he pointed out like three different things. And he's like, I'm guessing that this is not typical in scientists. <laughs> and it was that moment where it clicked of, yes, somehow I have ended up in this field as somebody who doesn't have the type of personality that it usually selects for. But then, and that's caused challenges at different points in my career. But at the same time, it's an opportunity to maybe think about different ways of doing this job and different ways of portraying this career. And it, it's been a lot of fun to be in this space and get to do that. And it's made me appreciate all the much more the other people who are in academia or in my field or in my friend group or family who also have a very different personality type or viewpoint on life than most of the other people that I'm surrounded by or most of the other people that they're surrounded by. And it's helped me to really appreciate 
that there are all of these different unique perspectives that have power to contribute in really important ways mm-hmm. wherever we are. Yes, yes. And so I'm hearing elements of of how your lab is and how you run it. I mean, just knowing that you did a personality or behavioral style assessment with your lab and and that you have a a social group, like both of those things seem really unusual to me uh, for academic science. Maybe I'm wrong, but... (laughs) but No, we're unusual, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about your lab. Tell us, um, uh, like, how you put it together, how long you've been doing this, what are some of the functions, what are you most excited about in terms of the work there? Oh, I would love to talk about that. So I have been a faculty member for a little bit over 11 years. So in academia or in academic science, you earn your bachelor's degree and then you go to graduate school. And if you're heading towards being a professor, you almost always earn a PhD. And then if you want to be a professor at a major research university where you are running a lab that trains other PhD students or postdocs, then you go and do what's called a a postdoc. I just use that word um, without defining it, but a postdoc is essentially like a high level internship. So after you have your doctorate degree, you often go and spend a few more years working in another lab. And that's a little bit of your bridge to independence. You're still working in someone else's group, but you're starting to develop your ideas. You're really growing as a leader and starting to learn some, hopefully learn some of those skills that you're going to need to be a leader yourself. Although I have, I won't talk about this now. Maybe we'll talk about it later that academia doesn't necessarily train people for the leadership roles that we ultimately end up in. And this is something I think really needs to change. But I had the opportunity to work with, with absolutely amazing mentors through undergrad, as a graduate student, as a postdoc. Uh, overcame a ton of self-doubt, just struggled so deeply with self-doubt that I could never, ever do this job, had phenomenal mentors who convinced me to go for it, even if I might fail. And so in 2009, gosh, feels like forever ago now, I applied for jobs, got a job, and had one of the more terrifying days of my life, which is my first day on this job, sitting in my office, and down the hall from me was this big 2,000-square-foot lab completely empty, no equipment, no people, no nothing. And to look at that and say, okay, I have five years to turn that empty room into this research group to recruit people, to provide an environment, be a leader, come together, generate ideas for what are we going to do that's different from what any of my previous advisors have done. And together we are going to get research done, publish it, get it funded and communicate that out to the community. And you've got five years to basically build up what is very much like a small business. This job is very much like being a small business owner. You know, you're managing a lot of your own finances, you're your own HR department in a way, and you're doing all the project management and all of those things. And so that's a really fun challenge. It was also unbelievably intimidating. And along the way, I realized, wow, I've got a leadership job and I don't think I got trained for that. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a, you know, part of the journey. But on the science side, we work in an area called supramolecular chemistry. And what that essentially means is that 
we build things and we build things with molecules and we think about molecules kind of like little Lego bricks that just like Lego bricks have all of the bumps and holes that allow them to fit together in specific ways. And then you can take that information design something and build it up and have something that is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, if you build a fire truck or whatever, that's cooler than, you know, just the mound of, of bricks that you started with. And similarly, mm -hmm. we love doing that with molecules and we especially love doing that with biomolecules. So the proteins and nucleic acids that are inside of our cells in our bodies and that allow us to live, they are basically the coolest Lego bricks ever. And we are fascinated by thinking about how we can take these incredible molecules that recognize each other in absolutely exquisite ways and how we can then build with them and modify them in order to address unmet needs in biomedicine, with the environment, thinking about tools that other researchers can use. And we, we look for an unmet need, we design a system, we build it, we test it, we fail a lot, we learn a lot, and then we come back and try again and um, often ultimately succeed and do something interesting. And even when we don't, we learn something interesting about how those molecules fit together and how they interact with each other. And we, mm -hmm. we do that research, but then really the research is just a vehicle to help people build their careers. That's really what we are all about is that each person comes in and is able to leverage all of the research, the resources, the experiences, the opportunities in our lab, in our department here within Emory University in order to identify their next future career steps and to build up the resume or CV and the experience mm -hmm. and expertise that they need to be successful in that. It's, it's incredible to listen to this because you put it in such a way that I think people can put their mind around it. I, my niece loves Legos. I mean, she'll get the most complicated Lego thing. And in three hours, you, you walk into the room and she's put it together. <laughs> and I think, I just love, I think people run away from science sometimes. They feel it doesn't relate to them and, and they don't know how to put their mind around it in terms of their daily life or, or what people in science do. And this is, this is fascinating. I could imagine sitting in the room, you know, this terrifying day with this empty, <laughs> empty room down the hall, knowing it's going to be your lab and it's, it, it's exciting. And the other thing I notice is that when, when you talk about this, you say, we, you are a we person. <laughs> this isn't like my kingdom kind of thing. It sounds like it doesn't sound like how you think. Can you yeah. say more about that? That is something that I've always embraced, but there have been moments along the way that have really dramatically shaped that worldview. So I, I was fortunate that I always had phenomenal mentors who were always we people as well, that in academia, yes, it's often, we call it the sage on the stage in the classroom, you know, it's the big important doctor or whatever who's up at the front of the room teaching. 
And even that we've been working really hard to break down, to take ourselves off of the stage, to take ourselves out of the center and to really put students in the center when it comes to education. We actually talk about student-centered education and that it should be more about students working in groups and us as faculty being facilitators. But there is still this culture in some places where yeah, the group leader is kind of the big person out in front. And in fact, even in the way we think about this structurally, that still bears out that as I've gone through promotions from being an assistant professor to being an associate professor to being a full professor, at each one, I've always felt this dissonance of, well, this is this promotion letter that changes my title and it was sent to me but really, this is the effort and the accomplishment of every single person in my group. And so I shouldn't be an assistant professor or associate professor. We should be an assistant lab and then an associate lab and then a whole lab. <laughs> it really should be our entire lab that's getting the promotion because it's in our entire lab that has accomplished those things. And I was fortunate to have mentors who modeled that worldview for me. And so it's something that I embraced from day one that the people who work in the group are colleagues and we are equals. We may have different roles and responsibilities, but no person is any more important or valuable than any other person. We are all colleagues and we all treat each other with respect as colleagues. So that's always been important. But there were a few moments, a few difficult career patches along the way where tough things happened. And in those moments, it drew our lab even closer together. And the loyalty that people in the group showed towards our group in saying, okay, we're going to get through this together and we're just going to keep doing our science and trying to be great because that's what we know how to do. And those were some of, as a leader, some of the most humbling moments of my life when I didn't deserve that sort of loyalty, but we all came together and got through it together. And that has also, I think, really had a huge impact on how I view our team and all of my coworkers. They're just, they may be earlier in their careers than me, most of them, well, I guess everyone who, who works in the group by definition in some ways is earlier in their career than I am, but that doesn't make anyone's contributions any less valuable. We all have incredibly valuable things to bring to the table. And by creating a culture where everyone is empowered to feel like an equal stakeholder in this small business-like enterprise that we've built, mm -hmm. I think everyone wins. Yes, yes. It, it's, I, I think it's a metaphor in terms of leadership and the, the metaphor of an academic department being like a business is, it's, it's good. And then you can see how the leadership is done and, and how I, I think a lot of leaders, especially untrained leaders, feel that being, um, you know, more directive or less uh, likely to share and empower or uh, give the kind of uh, respect or you know platform for people under them. It it creates problems or dependencies or these are just different leadership styles. And it's not. Yeah, I think you're doing something incredible. I think it's it's different. And 
I think all businesses can benefit more from this. Employee engagement is a serious issue, especially now that we're all working from home. But I think it's like I sit here listening and going, I want to be on our team. Like I took chemistry and <laughs> but well, I can't take the credit for this. This is just mm-hmm. all of the things that I've learned from reading books and from mm-hmm. being around other people who are outstanding leaders. It was actually a moment with one of my friends who is a peer of mine. We're about the same age, but he works in a completely different field and is really involved in organizational leadership. And I was telling him about something I was doing with my group. I said, oh, we went on this retreat and we read this book together and we talked about motivation and then we do projects planning together and strategic planning. And I just love doing this. And he said, Jen that's just organizational leadership. And I had never hardly even heard that term or understood what it meant. And uh-huh. I de- ne- definitely never connected it to this job that I had. And then as, as I started reading into the organizational leadership literature, I realized, wow, yes, that is what, <laughs> this. these are the sorts of skills that I need, or these are the sorts of ideas and understandings of team dynamics that I need. And we we often get trained to think that exactly like you said, leadership means being this loud person out front who is just, you know, above it all and commanding people to do this and that and the other thing. And yes, that is a leadership style, but it's in most situations, not the most effective leadership style. You know, every once in a while, you know, if there's a fire in your building and you're trying to get everyone out, yeah, certainly in that very <laughs> limited moment. I think Daniel Goldman uses that example in, in his uh, HBR article that, yes, that's a moment where that type of leadership is good. But most of the time, what, what the literature taught me is that exactly leadership looks like supporting people thinking, how do I empower this person? How do I help this person build their confidence or their motivation that they can do this? How do I try to take blame for things that might not be fully my fault, but then give credit for things that, you know, I might've had a hand in, but someone else really ran with. So it's all about taking blame and giving credit as a leader. It's about having empathy when somebody is going through a difficult situation. It's about being willing to wade into a conflict and try to be the person who listens and understands and helps create understanding between two other people. That really leadership is all of those much, most of the most effective leadership is those much quieter sort of invisible sort of skill sets but we don't get to see those on display as much. And so it took me a long time to realize, yeah, that's that's really the heart of great leadership right there. And those are the skills I need to build and continue growing in every day. Mm-hmm. But taking blame and giving and giving what was what was credit. the expression? Taking blame and giving credit. Those are that's so not an ego-driven model. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's just really interesting. I, I feel for people that haven't had the, the natural talent and, and the training and mentoring that, that you have had, because I think most people 
don't see that. And probably day to day in academic and scientific work, you don't have time or the interest to be reading leadership manuals or it's probably, <laughs> so this is part of the reason I wanted to do this is that I think you're exemplary. Your, your, your natural instincts are just so amazing. And then also it sounds like you're very curious and you have had a lot of training. You you seek out information to, to create things. That's incredible. So tell us a little bit more about your your family. How did you grow up? Did you how did you become to be this? <laughs> um, did, did you grow up in, in where you live now? Do you no, I I think that's actually part of what feeds my leadership style is that I never should have been able to be where I am right now. I never, ever would have imagined that I would be where I am now in my career. And so in a lot of ways, the last 10 years and especially the last five years and really especially the last two or three years have just been so beyond my wildest dreams of anything that I ever thought was possible that it allows me to come to work every day and say, well, yes, I still have goals. I still have ambitions. I've got some big goals and some big ambitions of things I want to do, but that's not the most important part. That's all just icing on the cake at this point. I have already accomplished for myself way beyond anything I ever thought was possible. And so really the absolutely above all number one priority right now is helping other people achieve that too. That there's very little left that if I never achieved it, I'd be sad. You know, obviously there's, I want to keep driving because it's just a lot of fun and it all works together to benefit the people who I work with. But really there's, yeah, there's nothing I still need left in it for me. It's all about what, how I can leverage my time to help other people. And so the way that I grew up, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, which if you haven't figured out yet, means I'm getting better and better at hiding my accent. It usually comes out in full force when I'm doing <laughs> podcasts. There's a lot of likes and you knows and all of that. Uh, cool. Um, but I grew up in Southern California. I loved math. Uh, but never really saw a career in science. I actually had this thing where my eighth grade science teacher told me I was not good at science. I was not good enough at science to take oh. ninth grade biology. And that was a big deal because then it was you were going into high school on the non-science track. And then I, but then I got into Science Olympiad because I needed something to do after school besides going home. And so out of all of the things I could have done as a teenager who didn't want to go home after school, I fell into Science Olympiad because my friends were doing that. And there was this amazing coach, Dr. Marcia Sprang, who is the reason I'm a scientist today. And she encouraged me to dive in and do Science Olympiad, even though I was quote unquote bad at science. And she also became just one of the most important informative mentors and advocates for me in my life in a moment where I desperately needed it. And so that put me on a path towards science. I went to college, got a year in as a biology major, realized, I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. 
decided to press pause on my education. I was actually going to finish a political science degree and go do bioethics law because it was at the time that the Human Genome Project was coming about. And you could see, you could see the event horizon of the you know 20, 25 years ago, you could see this event horizon of what we're in now, where we can edit genes in human beings. And what is that going to mean for ethics? You could see that we could do all of these things that would be, you know, potentially transformative to human health, but also really cross, you know, have potential to be used in ways that would cross what we consider to be ethical boundaries, or at least get into areas where we need to be rethinking what are ethical boundaries. And so it's yes. completely mm-hmm. fascinated by that. You could just, I watched actually the movie Gattaca came out when I was in college and I watched mm-hmm. it and it's one of my favorite movies because it is so on point. I just watched it with my 13 year old a few months ago. And it's like, wow, this is maybe not where we are right now, but it's probably where we could be in, in three or four or five years. And it's, it's mm-hmm. just so incredibly accurate. But yeah, so I was going to do that, but then I needed to do research. And I had this night job where I checked out glassware to students in chemistry labs. And I had no idea how to get into research because nobody in my family was a scientist. And so I thought, this is my chance because I know all of these graduate students, you know, as an undergrad, and I was like, oh, graduate students, they're amazing, right? I said that. <laughs> And I said, I bet one of them could help me join a lab. And that was the case. I fortunately somehow got into a lab, got to start doing research, realized I loved it, realized pretty immediately I wanted this career as a faculty member, was completely convinced that it was absolutely unattainable. There was just no way that I could do what I saw other professors doing. And so I went, but I loved research enough that I stuck with it, went and did my PhD, Uh, left California, went to the University of Illinois, met my wonderful spouse there, and we moved together to Boston for our postdocs, had a child, and that whole time was just this deep, deep battle with self-doubt. And it was really a month before job applications were due. I was still stuck thinking there is no way this is possible. And each of my mentors in their own way said, you know, if you want it this badly, maybe you should just go for it. And I realized it was easier to live with failure than regret that Mm -hmm. I thought I will likely fail at this, but at least I can live my life knowing that I've given a try to this dream job that I always wanted, but always thought was impossible. And so I went for it, very fortunately got a job and then almost lost that job by almost not getting tenure, but then I got tenure and was able to continue in that job. My lab and I moved and I was recently promoted full professor and who knows what the next chapter will hold, but it's, there's no way I thought I could ever be here, but I, I sure am lucky to be. Oh my gosh. What an incredible story. What an incredible path. Holy cow. That's interesting. I love it where you said you worked at the the night lab or the night situation where you checked yeah. out things and you thought graduate students were amazing and and that you still do think they are that's <laughs> different ways when I was an undergrad Absolutely. I just looked up to them I thought I could never be earning a PhD there's mm-hmm. no way oh my goodness how could mm-hmm. I I could never even get into grad school I could never get a PhD I could never be doing 
what they're doing and they are just mm-hmm. incredible. And then I became a grad student and I, I <laughs> somehow was able to do that. I always just thought at every stage I've come in thinking, I, I am behind of everyone, but if I work harder than I've ever worked before, maybe I can be mediocre in this place. Maybe I can rise to like average and make my way through. And, you know, now I'm in awe of graduate students because I get to work with a group that is 50 to 70% graduate students, also undergraduates and postdoctoral researchers, but grad school is just such an amazing time. There's something about the, the amount of development as a scientist that we all experience during that time. I know I did and getting to see other people do that, that you come in with some research experience, but then you leave being an absolute you know, expert in your subfield of research and directing your own project and being a leader. And it also for many people overlaps, not always, but often overlaps with their mid twenties, which is also just a really fun formative time developmentally as people are deconstructing and reconstructing their worldviews. It's really a, a privilege and really fun to be spending time with people who are at that place. And actually mm-hmm. a few hours from now at one o'clock today, I'll get to do one of these celebrations. I One of the members of our lab is defending her PhD thesis, which is basically your defense. It sounds like the scary thing, mm-hmm. but really what it is and what we've created culturally to be, at least in our lab and our department, it's a victory lap. It's your celebration of all of your accomplishments of your PhD. And I will get to go and celebrate that and celebrate how much that individual has always been a phenomenal researcher, but to see the way that they have worked through failures and obstacles and learn things and improve things and just done such phenomenal research and how much they've grown as a researcher and to see the, the writing is on the wall, the amazing things that they're going to go and do in their career beyond this place and to get to, to be a part of that, to get to play this little small role in that is just it's, incredible. It's so exciting. I think many people as graduate students don't really feel seen by their, by their professors and, and they don't feel this level of support. So this is really, I just think it's uncommon more people need to know about you and, and hear from you. I, and I need to keep getting better at it. I, I fall short so often. <laughs> you know, you have a bad day, you have a bad moment, you're stressed out, mm-hmm. but we're, we're all still, I think when we realize it's a skill set and that we can all keep growing at it and we can all keep getting better at it, that's when things get better. Yes, yes. I think there is a skill set there. And what are, what are ways that you would recommend for our people who are put in leadership positions in science, that they can grow their leadership skills. I'm a coach. I do leadership coaching. I feel like every leader needs a coach. I see them. I see different people in different situations and go, they need a coach. What are, what are key things that you would recommend for people? Well, I think you've just hit on one that especially in academia, we don't even necessarily embrace that this is a leadership job. What I do, we often still call a research job, that your researcher is a grad student, then your researcher is a postdoc, and then you're told, oh, if you become a faculty member, then you'll be a researcher as a faculty member and a teacher as well. So yeah, you got to learn the classroom teaching part. 
but no one ever tells you that you're going to be responsible for conflict resolution and strategic planning and financial management. And so I think Mm -hmm. even just recognizing that those are important skills and recognizing that there are resources out there. I know in the business world, not every company embraces these either, but I think they're a lot further ahead. So, you know, coaching is exactly one of those that people at our level of leadership in the business world often have professional coaches and have executive or leadership coaches, but that's much more rare in academia. And so I've worked with a coach for the last three or four years, and that is been transformative for me. It has been absolutely huge helping me grow as a leader and as a person. And I can't imagine not having that. But again, I tell people about that and they say, wait, wait, wait. no, that's strange. Tell me more about that because we don't usually do that. So I think embracing things like coaching, embracing things like reading, you know, you don't need to be diving into the original research literature. There's phenomenal sort of popular science, very accessible books out there about different leadership topics or podcasts. There are so many good podcasts. I can't tell you how many times I've been listening to a leadership podcast on my way to work and I hear something where I think, oh my goodness, that is exactly the advice that I needed for this discussion I'm going to have to have in my 2 p.m. meeting. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Podcast host. I appreciate that. I needed to hear that. And so mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, having those resources, actually, I will put in a, a little bit of a, a shameless plug that realizing exactly what you said earlier, that we don't have the time. And a lot of those resources aren't really made for those of us in academia, they're for people in the business world. And our world is kind of different. That's actually mm-hmm. what inspired me. People kept telling me I should write a book, to which I was like, no, I can never do that. No, I can never do that. My mm-hmm. spouse, we went out one night, we had too much wine. And he said, what would I admitted to him? I had thought about it. And he said, well, what would it look like to try? And so uh, I, it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, okay, well, I should at least answer that question before. He said, at least answer that question before you say no. If you look at what it would take to, to do it and you say, no, I don't want to do that. But don't let yourself doubt be making the decision for you. Mm-hmm. And so I walked forward and said, yeah, I think I want to do this. And so I'm about halfway through writing the manuscript. It will hopefully come out sometime in 2023. COVID has definitely slowed it down mm-hmm. more than I'd like, but it's going to be the resource that I always wish I had of let's sit down. And in one book, I will, you know, in each chapter, I'll kind of hit key points from a topic on leadership, but specific to academia in a way that is just us, you know, sitting and chatting over over a soda or over lunch, and mm-hmm. um, hopefully be able to make it even easier for people in my job to have access to some information that could be helpful. Because you're right, not everyone people don't have the time, and not everyone necessarily is as passionate about it. I love it because I just love learning all this stuff, but. I would have appreciated something. I appreciate these short, quick hits in in podcasts. And so being able to deliver a resource like that to other people is something that I'm really passionate about. That's great. That's great. Well, it's so exciting. So 2023, then that's- Yes, that's the hope. My manuscript is due at the end of 2022. And I'm hoping that used Mm -hmm. to sound far away, but as I look at my computer and the date is 12, 2021, 
I'm realizing that's going to come faster than I think, but yes, I'm hoping to have the draft finished next year and then to, that it will make it through to publication sometime in 23 that's, or soon after. Uh, that's so exciting. It's very, very exciting. But just to get back to the assessment that you did, the, the Berkman and the different styles that people have under stress and naturally, their natural styles. I think what happens it, with people in leadership for themselves and the people that are looking, perceiving them, is that they are in their stress zone. They're in their, and then they get judged and then they go, I can't be a leader. But really, if they could see, it's like, no, no, this is just how you are in this condition. And you can build your natural skills to be more effective and have a bigger swing on the things that you can do. Yes. I mean, there's so much you are learning such interesting things and embody them. It's, it's amazing. I think this will help scientists. I mean, you know, yeah, I recommend that assessment for anyone. And I think the stress behavior as a, as a coworker, it helps you recognize when other people are in their stress behavior and just say, oh, okay, I'm not, they seem to act this way and that didn't seem like them, but rather than be upset about it, I'm just going to recognize what that is and see that what I need to do is support them and, and then we'll come back to that later. But as a leader, it's also given me the words to say, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not upset right now. I'm sorry, I think I'm just a little bit getting into my stress behavior. So I'm a very outgoing person naturally. This is my normal behavior, but actually my stress behavior is very introverted. And so I go from wanting to talk to people and loving talking to people to just having this intense need to be all alone. In fact, my self-care is to sit on my couch in the dark alone after everyone has gone to bed and just enjoy that quiet. And I really need that. And if I, if I hit a point where I'm just had too much interaction, if I withdraw, then people who work with me might think, oh my goodness, she's upset about something or there's something wrong. This isn't like her, that she's just sitting alone. Why is she sitting alone out on the porch during a group retreat? And for me to be able to communicate, no, no, this is just my stress. I'm just, I'm all peopled out right now. It's nobody did anything wrong. I'm not upset at anyone. I just need a moment alone to recharge. And I think the more we recognize and each can articulate our needs, that averts so much conflict because so much conflict comes because we just misunderstand each other's behaviors. And the more mm -hmm. we have words and language to communicate that, then the better we can all support each other and also work together. Yes, yes, yes. That's, this reminds me of Mark Crowley's book, Lead from the Heart. He was on our, our podcast. He's, he's an amazing person. It's like, you know, if you lead from your heart, then, then these aren't judgments. They, these are, you, you extend that to other people and there's a lot more acceptance rather than snapshot judging of, of ourselves and others. Yeah. So, well, I could talk with you all day. This is so interesting. I think there's a lot here for everyone. What are you, what are you most proud of, Ben? I, I think I know, but when I, yeah, I am, I'm most proud of the culture that we have built in my research group, because that's something that we have done all together over the years. And 
when you work with undergrads and grad students and postdocs, it's this always revolving group of people because everyone comes intending to stay no longer than five years, which is kind of sad when amazing people leave, but also exciting that it's always changing. And that as that group has changed and as we've evolved and as we've talked more and educate ourselves, we've really articulated, this is the sort of culture and values that we want to have. This is the environment we want to walk into every day when we walk into work. And we are always improving it and it can always be better, but we have created that environment that we want to have. And I'm so proud of that. But I think what I'm most proud of too is that often it's thought that you can either have a healthy culture or you can have high productivity and that they are opposed to each other and that there's a trade-off, but rather we've shown that it's actually by having this healthy culture and a place where there is mutual respect and everyone feels belonging and everyone feels supported and we have strong teamwork, that it's actually because of that that we have been able to do the research you know, we can do outstanding research and we can have high productivity. So I think I'm most proud of being, and I'm not alone in this, but to be one more of those people, like many people I look up to as well, who's showing that you don't have to choose between healthy culture and high level research and that they in fact can be mutually reinforcing. Mm -hmm. That's, um, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Is there a particular research contribution that you're that you're especially proud of? Oh, that's you know that may be a hard question. <laughs> well, we have projects, and your projects mm -hmm. are kind of like your children, right? There's mm -hmm. you know people. Well, people you care about are working on each one of them and are are pouring their souls into them. And so I think each person in the group has for each person who's come through the group there is a research contribution of theirs that I mm -hmm. am most proud of, but I think I would be hard pressed to choose a favorite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it does seem like, I remember seeing you uh, post on something. It's like, I have to put together my application for funding and, and that. So it's to me from the outside, it would be great that you get funding, your, your research is supported, you're able to win uh, funders. And that seems like a huge thing these days. Yeah, that's a huge part of the accomplishment is that, and really the ideas that are getting funded are ideas driven by all of the people in our group, that it's not me sitting in my office, having these ideas and writing them up. It's, it's all of us working together in lab retreats or in different meetings, giving each other really candid feedback, having these lively discussions and ultimately pushing towards these ideas that we work to get funded and then we work to implement in the lab. Mm -hmm. That's great. So as we close here then, for listeners that are <clears throat> maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, in science or, or not in science, and, you know, just in respect of this interesting global pandemic that we're in and in this time of the, of the year, any, any messages of courage or hope or any thoughts that, that you'd like to leave with them? Thank you for that question. I, I had been thinking about this and I think the thought I would 
love to leave is something that I've been having to remind myself often, which is that it is, we need to give ourselves permission and even feel encouraged to feel joy and have fun and laugh, even when we're in the midst of a really, really difficult time. And I learned this in a big way when my dad passed away. I was in my last year of graduate student. I got the phone, uh, last year of graduate school, sorry, last year as a graduate student. And I got the phone call, found out my dad had passed away. We kind of knew it was coming, but that's still so difficult. It was devastating. I went and, you know, my spouse and I were on a flight that day to California. And you know, anyone who has lost a parent, you know that the next four days are just this chaos of talking with the lawyers and making arrangements and people coming to your house and all of the emotional highs and lows as you process your grief. And then there's all of these other people coming to your life and you're processing grief with them. And then we had his memorial service and that was you know, you're always, it's so bittersweet because it's a celebration of life, but it's also so emotional. And after four or five days of just all of that emotion, then the activity ceased. And we said, what should we do? And we decided, should we go see a movie? Would it be okay if we go see a movie? Would it be okay if we went and saw a funny movie? And we went and saw this comedy movie and it felt like this thing that we shouldn't be allowed to do. But then we said, no, our dad would have wanted us to do this, to, to just go and laugh. If there's anything that's him, it would be to go and, and just laugh and have a good time. And it was so good for our souls. But we realized, I realized, wow, we had to really push through our human nature and give ourselves permission to laugh and feel joy and to have levity during what was a really difficult time. And I think as we head into the holidays and even just every day during this pandemic, it doesn't show any disrespect to all of the suffering that's out there to find little pockets of joy for ourselves because we're all struggling in different ways. And in fact, if that finding that joy fills us up a little bit so that then we can in turn support and pour into other people, then that is a positive way of us caring for ourselves and caring for others. And it's something that we shouldn't feel bad about laughing or having fun or being joyful mm -hmm. in this time. Perfect. Well, <laughs> that's moving. That's it's in a perfect place to stop. Thank you so much for being here. This has been really just exceeded my expectations. Like I said, I you're not someone I know personally and but just really wanted to talk with and I think others really need to hear you and more well, people. Thanks for having me. This has been so much fun. <laughs> So thanks for joining us and thank you, Dan Schiffmacher, for your work in making this and all of the things that you have your hands in here much nicer and much better. And I really appreciate you and I've appreciated you during the last year so much. So thanks everyone, come back, be well, we'll get through this. Thank you. Mm -hmm.